Welcome to Lipan Apocalypse, Episode 1, The Whirlwind. I'm Brandon Seal. Down in the lower world, in the beginning, there was no light, only darkness. The people held a council down there. They discussed whether there was another world. They decided to send out Wind to find out. Wind went up to the surface. He was a whirlwind, and he cleared all before him, exposing the land. From the Guadalupe Mountains they emerged, we emerged, the Apaches, or Inde as we call ourselves, and we began walking to the four directions. To the north went the Navajo, to the west the Chiricahua, to the south the Mescaleros, and to the east, the last to drop off, were the Lipanes. And the first of these Lipanes was Killer of Enemies, a great one. So goes in a paraphrased format the Lipan Apache origin story. But note something interesting about it. Most people's origin stories, at least the ones I'm thinking of, imagine their ancestors as the first human beings. But the Lipanes, in their own telling at least, appear as the last humans. The last of the last humans, in fact, because in some tellings, the Apache exodus from the lower world had also been preceded by the animal people, the bird people, the tree people, and then the spotted wood people a sort of not-quite-fully-formed human race that perhaps represented all non-Apache peoples. And indeed, true to their legends, the Apaches' ancestors, who called themselves collectively the Inde in their Athabascan tongue, may have been among the last to cross the Bering Strait into the Americas. There's actually a language isolate in central Russia today that has been linked to these Apache ancestors. Other Athabascan speakers still live in Alaska and Canada, but some subgroup of these Inde broke off around 700 AD and began making their way south, propelled forward by a particular technological innovation, bow and arrow. These bow-wielding Inde hunters descended down the Canadian Great Plains like a whirlwind in pursuit of the caribou, until the caribou herds became buffalo herds, and then they began to follow the buffalo. And of course, true to their origin story, in all the new lands they entered, they found other peoples already living there. Killer of Enemies, their first man, despite his violent name, taught his people that they should expect to have to treat with others, to trade with them, to negotiate with them, and to occasionally ask them for help. According to legend, quote, nothing was impossible to Killer of Enemies, but even he asked for a little help now and then. That was to show that no matter how strong we are, we must ask for a little help, end quote. Killer of Enemies insisted that it was a moral obligation to make alliances with other people even those they found dishonest or distasteful. According to a later chronicler, quote, they attach great importance to entering into agreement and union with even some evilly deceitful Indians, upon whom they judge their prosperity and adversity to depend. Yet for all of their willingness to treat with other peoples, these Inde buffalo hunters didn't doubt that they were exceptional. The word arrogant shows up to describe later Apaches about as often as it does these days when foreigners write about modern inhabitants of the United States. An early Spanish commentator would describe Apaches as, quote, astute, suspicious, bold, haughty, and zealous of their freedom and independence, end quote. Which has always reminded me for some reason of Thomas Jefferson's description of New Englanders as, quote, cool, sober, laborious, persevering, independent, 
and jealous of their own liberties. End quote. Generalizing about the in they can get you into trouble real quick, however. They ate fish. They didn't eat fish. They made pottery. They didn't make pottery. They moved after burying their dead. They buried their dead under their homes. For me, all of this just serves as proof that by the time the in-day whirlwind had swept down the length of the Great Plains, they were a diverse, open-minded, and experimental conglomerate people. One Spanish viceroy would later say that, quote, under the name of Apache are an infinity of nations, end quote. The Inday were a cultural, as much as an ethnic group, defined by their shared Athabascan language, buffalo hunting, and by a moral obligation to everywhere and always seek alliances with the people they came across. Around 1300 AD, however, the buffalo began to wander even further south. The so-called Little Ice Age cooled the southern plains and began to water them with more regular rainfall. Here, however, on the western flank of the southern plains, the Inde migratory whirlwind smashed into another great people secure in their Rocky Mountain strongholds behind great adobe houses and irrigated fields. The Inde had never encountered peoples like this, peoples that the later Spanish would honor with the label of pueblos, meaning they were true peoples in the Spanish estimation because of their settled agricultural society. There were so many of them too, 40 or maybe 80,000 in two dozen or more city-states along the New Mexican Rio Grande. And they were wealthy beyond anything the Inde had ever seen a wealth generated by trading the caloric surplus of their cornfields for the exotic goods of Mesoamerica, cotton, copper, and colorful plumage. The Inde gift for alliance-making failed with the pueblos, at first anyway. But what could a bunch of poor buffalo hunters have to offer a wealthy, diversified trading empire? It seems like it was a question that was answered violently, the proof being that the name Apache comes to us from a neighboring language and means enemy. The Pueblo mountain strongholds along the upper Rio Grande scattered the Inde whirlwind all around them. True to their myths, some Inde spun off to the northwest to become the Navajo. Some, like the Chiricahua Apaches, broke west. Others, like the Mescalero Apaches, pushed around to the south, down the spine of the Rockies. And yet some struck out onto the Texas high plains. Plains Apaches, we might call them. The ancestors of the Lipan Apaches. The same little ice age which had drawn the buffalo south challenged the pueblos in ways that the Inde Bozoneros couldn't. While rainfall increased on the Great Plains, it disappeared from the pueblos' fields, leaving their crops to wither and waste away. The ice age also brought about the collapse of the great Mesoamerican trading outposts in Chihuahua on which the pueblos had depended for their trade. It caused the pueblos to look east for new trading partners to the Texas Panhandle, where they found the Antelope Creek peoples living near the headwaters of the Red River. The Antelope Creek people were perhaps the westernmost outpost of a larger, mound-building cultural group that extended all the way to the Mississippi River and spoke principally Caddoan languages, including the Pawnee in Wichita on the plains and the Tejas, who would give East Texas its name. The slab rock buildings and finely crafted ceramics of these Antelope Creek peoples spoke to their prosperity, which was a result of their control of the Alabates flint quarries. The Alabates flint quarries produced the highest quality and indeed most beautiful flint anywhere in the region. It was prized as far north as Montana, as far east as the Mississippi, and traded deep into Mexico as well. 
Flint was also, of course, a critical input for bison hunters like the Proto-Plains Apaches, not only for the hunting of buffalo, but also for the working of their hides, perhaps the most valuable non-perishable product of the buffalo. For these Plains Apaches coming upon the Antelope Creek peoples around 1400, control of the flint quarries offered a means of vertically integrating their economy. But more than that, controlling the flint quarries meant controlling the trade of the Texas panhandle. Buffalo hides and flint were just the currency of the great Mesoamerican Pueblo and Caddoan Mississippian trade. The trade itself was the prize. For all that Killer of Enemies had taught his people about alliance making, it does not appear that the Plains Apache absorption of the Antelope Creek peoples was a peaceful one. Trophy skulls and dismembered remains and a layer of burnt dwellings suggests a rather apocalyptic end to the Antelope Creek culture, more in line with a literal interpretation of Killer of Enemies' name. By 1450, maybe just a generation after their first encounter with the Plains Apaches, the Antelope Creek culture had been replaced by a Tierra Blanca culture, a buffalo hunting, agriculture eschewing, decidedly proto-Apache cultural center of power by which these Plains Apaches were able to insert themselves into the middle of the Rio Grande Pueblo and Caddo Mississippian trade. Killer of Enemies and his people hadn't cornered the market on the Texas Plains trade, however. There were other Texas Plain traders to the south, even more prosperous than the old Antelope Creek people, the so-called Humanos, who occupied the better part of modern Texas from El Paso to the Colorado River, and from the Brazos all the way down to the Rio Grande and beyond. The relative opulence of their communities around modern-day Presidio, Texas, as documented by our friend Cabeza de Vaca, spoke to the profitability of the Humanos trade routes. They boasted multi-story adobe houses, fields planted in corn, beans, and squash, and their peoples dressed in fine cotton and bedazzled with copper and turquoise jewelry. Before the Plains Apaches could even begin to alliance-make with these new Humano rivals, however, they noticed something. In the early 1500s, the Humanos' trade goods changed radically. Suddenly, they weren't just selling bolts of Mexican cotton or colored plumage or worked copper. Now, they had a different kind of linen, higher quality flints even than the alabates, and entirely new tools made from iron, knives, axes, and scissors. It gave the Humanos an insurmountable competitive advantage, briefly. Because not long after these mysterious new goods showed up in Humano towns, so too did a wave of devastating epidemics. Estimates vary, but as much as 95% of the native population of the Americas might have died from disease in the first century after contact, and there was a direct correlation between the death rate and proximity to the line of European advance. Unfortunately for the Humanos, they were the first North American tribes to really feel the advance of European disease, precisely because of their wide-ranging trading networks into the now Spanish-controlled Mesoamerica. Even in their weakened state, however, the Humanos mounted a fierce resistance against their new Plains Apache rivals. Such was the force-multiplying effect of the Spanish steel that the decimated Humanos had access to now, to say nothing of the turbocharging effects on a trading economy with access to such force-multiplying goods. Unfortunately for the Humanos, they weren't really a target for Spanish conquest, at least not in the 1500s. They were too dispersed to govern, and their trading economy was much harder to tax than an agricultural one. The true object of Spanish imperial interest was the Rio Grande Pueblo peoples. 
As we've repeated many times in this podcast, the ideal targets for Spanish conquest were large agricultural civilizations upon which the Spanish could impose themselves as tribute-collecting overlords. And the pueblos, with their concentrated populations, irrigated fields, and established cities, checked all of these boxes. These Spanish newcomers didn't tread lightly into North America, and stories of their arrival would have spread like a prairie fire. Literally, on their first visit to the Rio Grande Pueblos in 1640, the Spanish under Francisco Vázquez de Coronado porched at least 17 communities and burned perhaps 150 natives at the stake, to say nothing of those they killed in combat. But something about the Plains Apaches, whom they met for the first time the next year, in 1541, impressed the Spanish intimidated them even, in a way that settled Pueblo cities with their neat fields and adobe buildings hadn't, which says something. Coronado would describe the first Plains Apache settlement he encountered in the Texas Panhandle as consisting of dozens, if not hundreds, of houses. The houses were framed with stalks, quote, bent over like barrel staves, end quote, or stacked like more classic teepees with three structural tent poles lashed together at the top with rawhide, sometimes with a quasi-permanent stone foundation. And yet what stood out about all of these houses was the quality of the buffalo hides that enclosed them. They were, quote, made as neatly as those from Italy, end quote, a later Spaniard would claim. Plains Apaches themselves were no less impressive than their craftsmanship. The Coronado Expedition chronicler admired their, quote, neatness and martial bearing that differentiates them markedly from the other nations, end quote. Coronado said that they had, quote, the best physique of any I have seen in the Indies, end quote. And indeed, the archaeological record seems to back this up. Plains Apache men were tall, averaging close to six feet at a time when the average Spanish man was half a foot shorter than that. Apache women and men were routinely described as good-looking, by friend and foe alike, even as their grooming customs always shocked European observers a bit. Particularly their habit of plucking all their facial hair, including their eyebrows. Their dress, however, Europeans always found, well, I guess you'd say stylish, particularly their ever-present buckskin fringe, which remains a fixture of Western dress today. For all that they had heard about these rampaging newcomers, the Plains Apaches were surprisingly unintimidated by them. Their history had taught them how to deal with all kinds of people, and these great alliance makers immediately appreciated the potential benefits of friendship with these newcomers. Aside from the benefit of access to Spanish goods, Plains Apaches were particularly good at reading their world like a geopolitical checkerboard, by which I mean they were always quick to realize that the rivals of their rivals, one checkerboard square removed, often shared a common interest in teaming up. So, perhaps unsurprisingly, Coronado's chronicler found the Plains Apaches to be, quote, a kind people and not cruel, end quote, and, quote, faithful friends, end quote. Coronado's diary records these people as querechos, but one of the telltale clues by which we know that they were proto-Apaches was their distinctive use of dogs as beasts of burden to drag their belongings on tent poles. This form of transport had given the mobile and migratory plains Apaches just enough of a logistical edge to dominate the Great Plains, which suggests to me that they must have immediately noticed and intuited the potential of the animals that Coronado and his men were mounted on. Indeed, the Apache word for this new animal would be big dog. The horse, however, was much more than that. It wasn't just a better beast of burden. It made of its rider a veritable eagle, 
flying across the plains at unimaginable speed and with an unrivaled vantage. How, the plains Apaches wondered as soon as they saw it, how could they get a hold of these amazing four-legged force multipliers? Trade was the obvious answer. It's what the plains Apaches were best at, what they were committed to now more than ever since their conquest of the Antelope Creek peoples. And rumors had probably already reached the plains Apaches as to the pieces of commerce that these Spaniards most desired. Actually, pieces is what the Spanish euphemistically called their favorite trade goods. It was a psychological means of dehumanizing the commerce in Indian slaves, which almost as soon as the conquest of Mexico was complete, became the most profitable trade in Spanish North America. Particularly after the discovery of silver in Zacatecas, in Durango, and later in Parral, Chihuahua, in the middle of the 16th century, the mines of New Spain began to swallow the native population of Mexico. Life became cheap. A horse in Mexico City in 1525 was worth 300 pesos. An Indian slave was worth six pesos. But even the Plains Apaches understood the reason why. There were a lot more potential Indian slaves out there than there were horses. On the next episode of Lipan Apocalypse. Thank you for listening. Editing for this episode was performed by Susana Canseco. The intro and outro music is from the White Mountain Apache Crown Dancers. You can find them on YouTube. Special thanks this season to my Lipan friends, Bernard Barcena, Lucille Contreras, Richard Gonzalez, Margot Moreno, and Gary Perez. I hope I'm doing your story justice. And make sure to check out Lucille's Texas Tribal Buffalo Project online and fill out her Texas Indigenous Data Sovereignty Study. For more information about the Lipan Apaches, check out the books by Thomas Britton, Jose Medina Gonzalez Davila, Nancy McGowan Minor, and Sherry Robinson. Also, check out the doctoral thesis of Enrique Maistas and the Texas Observer article by Dylan Madur. Lastly, go to Gorka Alonso's website, apacheria.es. For more information on my other projects, you can go to brandonseal.com.